Welcome to Radio Davos as we look back on the Davos Agenda Week. More than 500 leaders of the world's biggest companies and two dozen heads of state and government getting together to discuss the world's biggest issues. If we don't urgently act to protect our nature, the next pandemic will be around the corner. Top of the agenda, COVID. Vaccines must be seen as global public goods, people's vaccines. This has never been done before and was something that has shown the power of science. Climate change. My name is Greta Thunberg and I'm not here to make deals. Geopolitics. We rejoin the international climate effort with humility, and I mean that, and ambition. Inequality. We risk facing the greatest rise in inequality since records began. It could take more than a decade for billions of people to recover from the economic hit of the pandemic. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Radio Davos. If you're solving an existential risk, if you're part of the solution, not part of the problem, it is a tremendous opportunity. From the World Economic Forum, this is Radio Davos. I obviously love the Davos podcast. <laughs> Thanks very much. Here it is. Like every year, Davos assembled global leaders from politics, business, science and society to discuss the world's biggest issues. The only difference this year was that it was a virtual event. Each day, this podcast, Radio Davos, brought you a flavour of what was coming up. You can catch up on all those podcasts at wf.ch podcasts and get more on the event at wf.ch Davos Agenda. On this episode, we bring you just a flavour of the discussions from 140 sessions over the five days. So let's start with the elephant keeping us out of the meeting room, COVID-19. Davos was forced online by it and the pandemic was a major theme of discussion. We now have vaccines, but how do we get them made and distributed widely enough that life can go back to normal? UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. There is now a clear, real danger of mutations making the virus more transmissible, more lethal and more resistant to existing vaccines. And we must act fast. Vaccines must be seen as global public goods, people's vaccines. And that requires full funding for the access to COVID-19 tools accelerator and its COVAX facility led by the World Health Organization. COVAX, we're hearing a lot about that these days, so what is it? It is the international system that was set up rapidly last year to get vaccines out around the world, including to countries that can't afford to buy them. It's coordinated by three organisations, the World Health Organization, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, CEPI, and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. This is Gavi's chief executive, Seth Berkeley. Last year was a moment where we sat down and began to discuss the formation of COVAX and also the first contracts were signed. And it's been, uh, you know, extraordinary. 303 days from the time the first uh, publishing of the genome until the time it was um, approved as an emergency use product. Um, this has never been done before and was something that um, has shown the power of science. Now, why was COVAX formed? Well, the previous experience in 2009 um, was that, and that was with swine flu, was that a small number of countries bought up the doses and there weren't doses available for the rest of the world. That was the worry here as well. Um, we initially began to worry that the, the developing countries would be left behind, but we realized that also upper middle income and even some high income. So we opened up the concept of, of, of COVAX um, and um, uh, for low and lower middle income countries, um, 
providing support for those countries financially, for upper um, uh, middle income and high income countries. Um, we didn't know if there'd be interest, but um, to make a long story short, we ended up with 190 countries coming together to work together on this, which shows the importance of solidarity because we're only safe if, if everyone is safe. Many heads of state and government addressed the Davos Agenda Week and almost all of them spoke about the ongoing pandemic. Here are two of them. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, who you'll hear after King Abdullah of Jordan. The pandemic continues to ravage our world and we have barely uh, scratched the surface of its long-term humanitarian and economic implications. Yet I believe there is a glimmer of hope. Some vaccines are ready and as we start this long overdue healing process, we are better served trying to heal this together. And here we must ensure the efficient and equitable distribution of COVID vaccines as well as treatments. It is a moral duty to treat the vaccine as a global public good that ensures that low-income and poor countries are not left at the end of the waiting line as high-income countries buy the majority of the most promising vaccines. We are concerned about vaccine nationalism. The rich countries of the world went out and acquired large doses of vaccines from the developers and manufacturers of these vaccines. And some countries have even gone beyond and acquired up to four times what their population needs. And that was aimed at hoarding these vaccines. And now this is being done to the exclusion of countries, of other countries in the world that most need this. And it was a great plaudible effort by the World Health Organization to set up the COVAX facility, where it felt that we needed to, to agglomerate all our acquisition processes so that there can be equity in the uh, distribution and in the access to vaccines. Now, rich countries in the world are holding on to these vaccines, and we are saying release the excess vaccines that you have, you have ordered and, and hoarded. There is just no need for a country which perhaps says, has about 40 million people goes and acquires 120 million people, uh, doses or even 160 million. And yet the world needs access to those vaccines. Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa before him, King Abdullah of Jordan. In addition to fears of richer countries sucking up all the vaccines, there are concerns that vaccine nationalism could also prompt governments to impose export bans that would impede trade in vaccines, something that the head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, warned against. Many businesses have global operations that depend on global supply chains. In our global village, if the virus continues to circulate, those operations and supply chains will continue to be disrupted and the economic recovery will be delayed. If we lose trust in international collaboration through vaccine nationalism, we will all pay the price in terms of a protracted recovery. We are asking those governments that have already received deliveries of vaccines to vaccinate their health workers and older people and share excess doses with COVAX so other countries can do the same. Responding to calls to get vaccines out to poorer countries, German Health Minister Jens Spahn had this to say. There needs to be a balance between 
uh, when if we take vaccination, the vaccination of your own people, and the and that is actually the the base for acceptance of um, being engaged worldwide. If you want a country like Germany to be engaged as we are, and we are very much engaged with COVAX, ACT, spending um, uh, money because not just for humanitarian reasons, but of course of, for our own interest, because it's important for us that Europe is safe, that the world is, uh, is safe. Uh, but if we want to have acceptance for this, of course, we also need to vaccinate if we take this case of vaccination to vaccinate our own people. So it's about the right balance. And I totally agree. Uh, our common goal is to vaccinate the world this year. You're listening to Radio Davos. We'll be right back after this news of the latest episode of Meet the Leader, a podcast from the World Economic Forum. The worst thing in the world is to have a solution in search of a problem. Are you solving the right problem? That's the key question for any leader especially this week's guest on Meet the Leader, Carlos Brito, the CEO of Anheuser-Busch InBev. He'll explain how the company tackles pain points for farmers and retailers across the globe, including those in developing countries, and how they're ensuring groups like smallholder farmers can take advantage of new advancements in weather data and other technology. We have smallholder farmers, and they have a flip phone. So sharing had to be all based on flip phones an SMS so we could get people to be included as opposed to excluded. He'll explain why the company is investing in tech like blockchain and working to bridge digital gaps and how those investments kept the company moving last year and kept its communities resilient. He'll also share his favorite book and what makes any meeting more worthwhile. If you enter in a room and things are decided in two minutes or three minutes and everybody agrees, that was not a very good session. There's all that and more on the World Economic Forum podcast, Meet the Leader. I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to Radio Davos with a look back on the Davos Agenda Week. Many of the speakers at the Davos Agenda Week drew a link between COVID-19 and environmental degradation. This is veteran conservationist Jane Goodall, who spoke exclusively to Radio Davos. We have absolutely disrespected nature and disrespected animals. It's our treatment of animals that's really caused this, this pandemic. The people studying zoonosis have predicted this for years and years and years. This is going to happen. If we don't do something different, there'll be more pandemics. They could be worse. There's a tapestry of life, this glorious tapestry of all these interconnected life forms. And every time a species goes extinct, it's like tearing a hole. And in some places, the tapestry is now so tattered from all the holes that have been torn that it's going to be very, very hard to put it back together. You can hear the whole interview with Jane Goodall on the day four episode of Radio Davos at the Davos Agenda Week. The biggest environmental threat is climate change, as campaigner Greta Thunberg reminded us in this message for Radio Davos. Today, we hear leaders and nations all over the world speak of an existential climate emergency. But instead of taking the immediate action that we need, they set up vague, hypothetical, insufficient targets way into the future. What we need to begin with is to implement annual binding carbon budgets based on the current best available science. But I can assure you this, you cannot negotiate with physics. And your children and grandchildren 
will hold you accountable for the choices that you make. So what of those decision makers? Here's the newly appointed US climate change envoy, John Kerry, talking about President Joe Biden's decision to bring the US back into the Paris Climate Agreement. We rejoin the international climate effort with humility, and I mean that, and ambition. Humility because we know we've wasted four years in which we were inexcusably absent. But we re-enter with ambition, knowing that at the COP in Glasgow in November, all nations have to raise our sights together or we all fail together. Let me just say to you, President Biden is totally committed to this fight. He understands what we're up against, and that's why he ran on the most ambitious, comprehensive climate platform of any presidential candidate in U.S. history. Even if we did everything that was promised in Paris, folks, the Earth's temperature is going to rise to 3.7 degrees. That's where Paris left off. And that's just because the conglomeration of all the things that people were willing to do just didn't add up to what we need to do. So what I'm trying to say is we have to go to Glasgow with a view, each of us, to hold all of ourselves accountable at a time where we know so much more about what it takes. Three years ago, Scientists starkly warned us that we had 12 years in which to make decisions to avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. Now, already, we're down to nine years left. John Kerry mentioned the climate summit in Glasgow in November. One of the main players in the run-up to that meeting is former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, who is advising the UK government and the United Nations on how big finance can be deployed to decarbonise the world. I spoke to him during the Davos Agenda Week and asked him why we should imagine that cold-hearted financial markets, which are driven by greed and fear, should change their ways and stop backing polluting activities and start backing climate action. Okay, well, let me take your fear and greed and turn them into risk and opportunity um, and uh, and make a basic point, which is climate change is the existential risk. Uh, if we don't address it, um, uh, fundamental uh, challenges to human life and livelihoods, uh, our economy, but also our, our ecosystem uh, at, at its most fundamental level. If you turn that around, if you're solving an existential risk, if you're part of the solution, not part of the problem, it is a tremendous opportunity. And it, if, again, to use your words, turns into the greed or the opportunity uh, part of the equation. So that is that is the basic point. And what we see to make it more tangible is now is that finance, whether it's investors, uh, whether it's people lending, whether it's uh, investing in it for our pensions, um, are focused on there are activities and assets that formerly were valuable that will not be valuable uh, in a net zero world. In other words, they will become stranded assets uh, because they produce too much carbon, because they are part of the problem. Conversely, there are technologies and activities that are part of the solutions and they will be tremendously valuable. And so what's happening right now is a shift away from those risks, that fear, and towards uh, greed in your words, uh, but those opportunities. Uh, And that's a huge, huge uh, shift in capital. It will be measured in trillions of dollars every year for decades in order to address um, this, uh, this challenge. You're listening to Radio Davos with a catch up from the Davos Agenda Week. We'll be right back after this. When we started uh, back in 2009, people said, well, 
this can never work and it's just not possible to do this. I think having clean air and atmosphere that isn't causing a climate problem is also a right we should have as citizens. This week on House on Fire, sucking carbon out of thin air. The question whether we should do this or we should do other things, that's a question that was very valid to ask 20 years ago. However, today it's too late to ask this either or question, we just have to do both. We meet the pioneers turning direct air capture from science fiction to reality. What we need to do is create an industry with a similar impact than the entire fossil industry. Uh, we know exactly how to take oil and gas out of the ground and putting carbon back in it is basically the same process in reverse. Companies are looking for you know, business models that allow them to go to net zero. You know, no amount of electric cars, renewable electricity is going to solve yesterday's emissions and direct air capture can. That's House on Fire from the World Economic Forum. You're listening to Radio Davos with a look back on the Davos Agenda Week. We've just been talking about climate change, and if the whole world is to tackle climate change, it has to address global inequalities to ensure poorer countries can develop in a way that avoids the climate harm inflicted by old-style industrialization elsewhere in the world. Many of us, when we think about inequality, we think this is something just for idealists or an inconvenience to the serious business of capitalism. Gabriela Boucher, Executive Director of Oxfam International. Oxfam's message is... No, actually. Equality is a fresh and moral and serious framework that can reshape the way we run our economies for the 21st century. Equality in our economy will drive us towards achieving the global goals that governments around the world agreed to. And it's crucial to fighting the climate breakdown. And let me say we're paying for the profound failure of governments to address inequality. Oxfam is at Davos, as you say, this year with new data. It shows that while at the very top, just 10 billionaires, all men, have seen their wealth skyrocket by half a trillion dollars since March. That could have paid to vaccinate the world and prevent anyone from being pushed into poverty by the pandemic. As well as wealth inequality, racial inequality was tackled at the Davos Agenda Week. This is the CEO of EY, Carmine DeCibio. Really, I think the George Floyd incident in the United States woke us up a little bit that we probably weren't as focused on people of color, not just in the United States, but around the world. And so we actually set up a global uh, task force uh, around this issue. And uh, it's really incredible when you see our global task force on these screens and you see, you know, 50 people from around the world dealing with the same issue. This is not just a US issue. And that's what I think is great. The George Floyd situation really opened people's eyes all over the world. And it's great to see that this is now at the top of the agenda um, in terms of making sure that we solve you know, the inequity problems and the racial problems around the world. Sticking with the racial equality, this is the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Uh, this pandemic has exposed uh, those structural inequalities but it's exacerbate them as well. And what do I mean by that? If you're a black male Londoner, you're four times more likely to have lost your life than if you're a white male Londoner. If you're a mother, you're 50% more likely to have lost your job than if you're a father. And so I've experienced what the IMF is talking about when the IMF says, if we're not careful, we could undo 30 years of progress made around gender equality. Sadiq Khan, 
You're listening to Radio Davos with a look back on the action at the Davos Agenda Week. We've been looking at inequality and lots of the discussions at Davos this year were about the power of technology to solve some of our biggest problems, including inequality. This is Robert Smith, chairman of Vista Equity Partners. Broadband is the key. That is the infrastructure uh, dynamic that will make all of the difference. It, it can eliminate the, the education deserts, the healthcare deserts, the business deserts, the ability to drive capital and, and, and infrastructure, uh, enterprise software infrastructure into small to medium businesses. And we need available, affordable and adoptable, call it readiness capacity uh, in our communities. You know, in the area of education, which is one of the areas I'm really focused on, you know, we've done a study with PowerSchool and McKinsey, and we've looked at every single community in America. We know we can sort it by, you know, the African-American population and the broadband penetration. We know exactly how many families and students are disconnected in every community. We know exactly what broadband carriers are, are either backhaul capability there and don't have last mile, mile built out. And so now it comes to how do we form the partnership? to ensure that we can actually get the connectivity in those communities. Because once you create the connectivity for education, guess what? You now have the ability to deliver telemedicine uh, uh, solutions into those communities and the ability to deliver uh, 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 solutions for small to medium businesses. But what about those places and those billions of people who have no access to the internet? This is the Minister of Information and Communications of Rwanda, Paula Ingabire. We still see a huge divide. I think when we look at the statistics of 3.6 billion people that are still left unconnected, the majority are on the African continent in the developing uh, countries. And so uh, that in itself um, goes a long way to show uh, that, you know, as we talk about the digital divide, as we talk about digital inclusion post the COVID world, then it becomes more and more urgent uh, for some of our economies. Brad Smith, the head of Microsoft, said that the digital divide exists even in rich countries. You know, we saw before the pandemic that you know, broadband was a real ticket to the future, um, but we've seen just how glaringly it is to leave some people you know, without that ticket. Uh, you know, we're seeing you know, underprivileged kids uh, you know, just literally not be able to attend school. Uh, you know, we're seeing you know, rural communities you know, continue to be left behind. They were before, now we see it more clearly. So I, yeah, I just think if there's one thing that we start with, it's a resolve to eliminate the broadband gap over the next few years, which I think new technology will enable us to do. During the Davos Agenda Week, major companies signed up to the Edison Alliance. That's an acronym for Essential Digital Infrastructure and Services Network. This alliance is a way of bringing companies and governments together to seek solutions to the problem of digital inequality. This is the CEO of MasterCard, AJ Banga. I would encourage us to remember that this Edison Alliance can apply across the world in developed and developing. The second aspect on education for a second is that to get people to engage with the digital world, you have to educate them of the power of the digital world, whether that is through engaging them with citizenship applications that allow them to engage with government as a way to get aware of this or healthcare applications or education applications. View this as an idea of a journey where you got to take them with you and you have to create trust in the system. So even if you're well familiar with how to use this infrastructure, if you don't trust it, either for cyber reasons or data privacy reasons, and that could get us into a whole conversation about how you treat data, I think you run a very real risk of not tackling this issue the right way. 
AJ Banger of Mastercard mentioned data protection, one of the problematic sides of the increasing importance of big tech, something that European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen had something to say about. The activists warned about the business models of big tech companies and the consequences for our democracy. And they described how the economic laws of social media are eating away at the fabric of our society and how fake news even by algorithm spread six times faster than real news. They pinned their hopes on Europe because the European Union had already proven that it is able to set standards that are respected around the world, such as with our general data protection regulation, the GDPR. So the warning signs were already there in Davos. So let's hear from the head of Google, who said his company recognized the need for global action on governing the rapid growth of technology. Just like to tackle something like climate change, uh, we have the notion of a Paris Agreement. We need countries to come together because no single country can solve a planetary issue. I think issues around, you know, as technology progresses with AI and, and quantum computing, we're going to need additional frameworks like that to ensure safety uh, for the planet. And, and so I think, I think it's important to acknowledge there is going to be global progress. And I think, uh, you know, we should think early and, and, and come together uh, uh, to solve, uh, solve the bigger, uh, longer-term safety issues from these technologies. The head of Google, Sundar Pichai, ending our look back on the Davos Agenda Week. Remember, this was merely a taste of the action. You can hear, see and read much more at the website, weform.org, and you can listen back to the daily podcast from Radio Davos, which I presented with a different co-host each day from The Economist, The Financial Times, Politico, Business Insider and The Straits Times. Radio Davos is a podcast on the World Economic Forum. It was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with help from Alex Court. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. For more about all our podcasts, please visit wf.ch slash podcasts. I'll leave you with some of the opening concert of the Davos Agenda Week, which was done in the form of a 23-minute movie of musicians playing across the world. Afghanistan, Austria, Brazil, China, Italy and the US. Find it online. The film is called See Me. And from South Africa, this is the Drakensberg Boys Choir. Thanks for listening.